Good morning. We'll be reading today from Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in the Father's glory with the holy angels. You may be seated. So as always, in order to understand the passage we read a little better, I like to look at the context of the verses that we're reading. In some cases, I might look a chapter before or a chapter after, or maybe just a few verses on either side of the passage. But in this particular case, I want to take a broader view surrounding this passage out of Mark 8, because chapter 8 in the book of Mark represents a big turning point in the book. Prior to chapter 8, the book focuses on the many miracles performed by Jesus as he is revealing himself to the disciples. Beyond chapter 8, the focus shifts a little bit and there is more of a focus on teaching as now the disciples are beginning to grasp who Jesus is and what he is there for. I like to think of it as being similar to the first bike we get for our kids and the learning curve that comes with that. We buy the bike and our kid is excited to ride, but at first they barely know how to pedal or brake. And we don't take them to a downhill mountain biking course the first day, do we? No, that wouldn't, that wouldn't turn out well. In fact, when we brought my son Jackson's first bike home last year, we spent the first couple rides in about a 50-foot section of the sidewalk in front of our house. He wasn't ready to go out on the main road or even a side street right off the bat. But he eventually got to a point where he could ride around the neighborhood with his friends. We're still a little ways from the downhill courses, but he's continuing to grow in, in his ability and his understanding of how to ride. In the same way, Jesus' disciples weren't fully equipped or even fully in the know on who exactly they were committed to following at first. They were invited to follow Jesus, and they went willingly. They left their 
former professions, so they may have had an idea of who they were following. But Jesus would reveal himself to them as they went about ministry together for the next several years. It wasn't an immediate understanding for them. So dealing with our passage today, let's break it down a little bit at a time. The first few verses, Jesus is asking the disciples if they know who he is. First, they offer some ideas on who others say that he is. Then he asks more specifically, who do the disciples think he, that he is? Now imagine you were in the disciples' shoes. What would your answer be? I know I'd be nervous if I was following this guy around and he was asking me a pointed question, who am I? But Peter here answers with the, or goes with the answer, you are the Messiah. He gives the best Sunday school answer he could muster. And what do you know, he's correct. Although maybe he didn't understand quite what he was saying. This is actually the first time in Mark that the disciples have identified Jesus as the Messiah. But they don't identify him, what they don't identify him here as is the Son of God. He goes on to, Jesus goes on to describe himself as that in the next verse. So it seems the disciples, or Peter at least, is still working on figuring out exactly who Jesus is. And who in here can relate to that? We're all in a continuous pattern of learning. Maybe there are times where we feel like we have a grasp, and then more is revealed to us that continues to adjust our understanding of who Jesus is. Now luckily we have the Bible to look at, and that gives us a lot of insight into who Christ is, who God is, but does anybody in here fully understand God? The reality is that we can have a relationship with Christ and with God, but there are some things about him that we aren't fully able to comprehend. We have finite minds and fully understanding a God that is infinite in nature is beyond what we're able to grasp. Now in some ways that can be frustrating. I wanna know everything about the God that I follow. And not being able to leaves questions for me, for each one of us to work through. But in other ways, serving a God that we don't fully understand is just what we need. A God that came to earth, transformed fully into man, with still being, or without still being God, wouldn't have the power to forgive sin and would not have been able to remain sinless anyway. The mysteries, the unknown, and the infinite nature of God are just what we need to save us from ourselves. Now the second section, verses 31 through 33, Jesus starts talking about his overall purpose for coming to earth. And while coming to work with the disciples, lead the disciples, and doing ministry was important, what was the main point of Jesus coming to earth? Dying on the cross was the ultimate goal, so that he could save us from our sin. In order to be an effective replacement or sacrifice for us, he had to become fully, fully man, and yet he was still fully God. Again, something we can't quite comprehend. 100% God, 100% man. It doesn't fit our normal understanding. So Jesus begins explaining that he would die on a cross and be raised again three days later. Peter begins re rebuking him. To rebuke someone, by dictionary definition, is to express sharp disapproval or criticism of someone because of their behavior or actions. 
In other words, Peter's basically saying, uh, Jesus, you shouldn't be saying that. Just when we thought Peter was ready to take the training wheels off, he reveals he's not quite ready. He doesn't quite get it. Now, in part, Peter's understanding of the Messiah was different from what we have. We know that Jesus came to earth to die and to be resurrected, but Peter didn't associate the Messiah with someone who would go through suffering and death on their behalf. He was expecting political freedom, someone who would save them from their suffering just here on earth. So maybe in some way, Peter didn't want to accept the fact that Jesus would have to die in order to save them. But it just showed a little bit more that he didn't fully grasp the reality of who Jesus was. Just a few verses earlier, Peter was the one who proclaimed Jesus was the Messiah. And now here he is rebuking Jesus, telling him to stop suggesting that he was going to die. And Jesus reacts fairly harshly to that, doesn't he? What does he say in verse 33? He says, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. I mean, Peter had just gotten the gold star for the right answer. Jesus being the Messiah. And now Jesus is calling him Satan. But does Jesus literally think Peter Satan? I mean, after all, Jesus is probably pretty familiar with him. He had spent 40 days in the desert or in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. I think in this case, he's just overemphasizing what we all represent when we get distracted from Jesus' ultimate purpose here on earth and in, and in turn get distracted from what our mission needs to be. Jesus ultimately would need to die in order to save us from our sin. So anything that would distract from that or deny that it needed to happen wasn't going to work. Jesus goes on to say, you do, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Peter had an idea of what was going on when he says Jesus is the Messiah, but he misses the main point when he can't quite get behind Jesus dying for our sins. He isn't seeing the full picture just yet. But Jesus begins to clear it up for Peter and for us in the next few verses. Oftentimes we want to believe that we serve a God that is loving, gives us everything we want, and lets us live a life, an easy life as believers. But Jesus doesn't just offer us a life where he forgives our sins, and then we go about living above the suffering that the rest of the world has to deal with. Instead, Jesus is the Messiah that comes to meet us where we are, sees our vulnerability, our struggles, our losses, and says to us, follow me. He invites us to take up our own crosses to share in the victory that he has won. He has experienced all that we have outside of sin, and he wants to guide us through this life. But that isn't going to come with an easy life. That isn't promised to us. In fact, that's pretty much the opposite of what's guaranteed. Jesus says, whoever loses their life for him will save it. And at first glance, that doesn't make any sense. But when we tie this all together, we can understand the meaning of his words. Peter had human concerns rather than being focused on the bigger picture that God had in the works. The same is true here. Jesus isn't speaking of a physical death, although that will come too. 
No, the death he's speaking of is a spiritual death. By following Jesus and carrying our cross, we are allowing the old sin nature to pass away, and we are raised up a new creation into eternal life. But what are the challenges we face as part of this new life if we choose to follow Christ? The life we are called to lead as followers of Christ is one of sacrifice, and maybe even persecution. Now, we don't often see that where we live. We're free to speak the gospel. But do you think these verses have a different meaning for a lot of believers in our world? Maybe believers that have been cast out from their friends, their families, or even worse, maybe they've been imprisoned or in a place where they can be killed if the wrong person catches wind of their faith. I think we have a much different perspective than much of the world. But there will always be something that challenges us as believers or convicts us as our wrong, of our wrongdoing, our lack of focus on Christ. And to me, verse 36 is among the most important reminders of what our, what our challenges will be and what our focus should be on. Verse 36 reads, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? This brings to my mind the story of the rich young man that Jesus would go on to speak of in chapter 10. Again, Mark focuses on revealing Christ's identity up through chapter 8, and then there's more focus on teaching after chapter 8, after the disciples begin to understand the true purpose of Christ's coming. So in chapter 10, many of you may know the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The young man is happy to hear the first part of Jesus' answer when Jesus tells him that he is to keep the commandments. The young man says, I have obeyed them since I was a boy. Then Jesus says that he only lacks one thing. He must go and sell his possessions and follow Jesus. At this point, it says the young man's face fell and he went, went away sad because he had great wealth. Now obviously the young man was not sad because he had great wealth, but because Jesus told him he would need to give it away. And that's the trap the world sets for us sometimes. The message we see and hear is that things of this world will make you happy. Whoever has the best clothes, the best car, the most money in the bank, that person wins. But Jesus' message is counter to the worldly way of thinking. By not placing high value on material things, not focusing on accumulating material blessings on this earth, we in fact gain something much more valuable, something with eternal implications. Just as the cross of Jesus wasn't the end of the story, but the beginning, it is the same when we choose to take up our cross and follow Christ. Trading worldly blessings for a life of sacrifice may seem foolish to those who have not heard the good news. And I'm not going to say it's an easy choice or an easy life. Even Christ, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, asked God to remove the burden from him, if it were the will of the Father. But following Christ won't be a life of all suffering and pain. There is also great joy that comes from serving Christ. And even if we have to give up things of this world, we know it is only a temporary loss of something that is passing away. We know that there is an eternal reward 
for those that choose to give up their own selfish interests and follow Christ. At the end of our passage today, we see that there not only is there a benefit for those who choose to give up their lives for Christ, we see for those who choose not to give witness and are ashamed of Christ, he too will be ashamed of them and not speak for them before the Father on the day of judgment. Now as a final encouragement for you today, I'd like to read Hebrews 12, one through three, and I'll share a quick story because I think it fits well. In sixth grade, I, I actually memorized this passage, Hebrews 12, I think it was verses one and two, and we, uh, it was part of our Sunday school memorization we ended up having a Super Bowl party that year at Pastor Dave and Nancy's house. And I didn't know, but we would, we would end up drawing these verses out for prizes during the game. Whoever memorized these verses would get to throw their name in the hat. And I didn't know that you would have to recite the verse at the Super Bowl party with the pastor there. So needless to say, 11 or 12 year old Dan was pretty nervous when my name got drawn. But my focus, my focus was on a, whatever the prize was that day. I don't remember if it was a candy bar or a gift card or whatever it was. But I figured, okay, I can do this. I want the prize. But in reality, the prize, I don't even remember what it was. But I got something eternal. I got, I got to memorize Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, and now I get to share it with you today. I remember... Uh, it's, it's stuck without me throughout my life. Wherever I was going through times of struggle or experiencing the joy of life in Christ. And the verses say this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scoring its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We can be reassured that we have the only example we need in the perfecter of our faith. He asks us to follow him. But he isn't asking us to do something that he hasn't already experienced. He has already run the race, and he's marked out the way for us. Now it is up to us to choose each day to follow him. It's not going to be easy. You will stumble and fall. There will be distractions, and people will try to pull you off the course. But we know the person we can fix the, our eyes on. We know the Messiah. And we know the reward that is promised to those that believe in his name. So let us not be ashamed of it, but let us proclaim the name of Jesus to all those around us, that they might choose to follow as well. Amen. Now as Adam comes forward to lead us in communion, let us pray and prepare our hearts to receive the sacrament. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have invited us to follow you. We thank you that you equip us with all that we need to do ministry in your name. And most importantly, we thank you today for the body and blood we are about to receive that represents your sacrifice for us that allows us to join 
in your victory over sin and death.